I invite you to turn again to the gospel according to Luke, Luke chapters 10 and 19, as we consider the other side of the Eighth Commandment, considered the more negative, the what is forbidden part. This morning I'd like to look more towards the positive, what is required tonight, and reading two passages. First of all, from Luke chapter 10 at verse 25, we have the parable of the Good Samaritan. Luke chapter 10, at verse 25. And there we read God's word. And behold, a certain lawyer stood up and tested him, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, What is, your, what is written in the law? What is your reading of it? So he answered and said, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, You have answered rightly, do this and you will live. But he, wanting to justify himself, said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? And then Jesus answered and said, A certain man went down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell among thieves, who stripped him of his clothing, wounded him, and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance a certain priest came down that road, and when he saw him, He passed by on the other side. Likewise, a Levite, when he arrived at that place, came and looked and passed by on the other side. But a certain Samaritan, as he journeyed, came where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. So he went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. And he set him on his own animal, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. On the next day when he departed, he took out two denarii, gave them to the innkeeper, and said to him, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, when I come again, I will repay you. So which of these three do you think was neighbor to him who fell among the thieves? And he said, He who showed mercy on him. Then Jesus said to him, Go and do likewise. And then turning further in the gospel to chapter 19, Luke 19. And here we have the Lord's rescue of Zacchaeus and then the parable of the Minas. Luke 19 at verse 1. Then Jesus entered and passed through Jericho. Now behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus who was a chief tax collector and he was rich. And he sought to see who Jesus was but could not because of the crowd for he was of short stature. So he ran ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him, for he was going to pass that way. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and saw him and said to him, Zacchaeus, make haste and come down, for today I must stay at your house. So he made haste and came down and received him joyfully. But when they saw it, they all complained, saying, He has gone to be a guest with a man who is a sinner. Then Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Lord, look, Lord, I give half of my goods to the poor, and if I have taken anything from anyone by false accusation, I restore fourfold. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, because he also is the son of Abraham. For the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost." 
Now, as they heard these things, he spoke another parable because he was near Jerusalem and because they thought the kingdom of God would appear immediately. Therefore, he said, a certain nobleman went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and to return. So he called ten of his servants, delivered to them ten minas, and said to them, do business till I come. But his citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him, saying, we will not have this man to reign over us. And so it was that when he returned, having received the kingdom, he then commanded these servants to whom he had given the money to be called to him that he might know how much every man had gained by trading. Then came the first, saying, Master, your mina has earned ten minas. And he said to him, Well done, good servant, because you were faithful in a very little, have authority over ten cities. And the second came, saying, Master, your mina has earned five minas. Likewise, he said to him, You also be over five cities. Then came, then another came, saying, Master, here is your mina, which I have kept, put away in a handkerchief. For I feared you, because you are an austere man. You collect what you did not deposit and reap what you did not sow. And he said to him, Out of your own mouth I will judge you, you wicked servant. You knew that I was an austere man, collecting what I did not deposit and reaping what I did not sow. Why then did you not put my money in the bank, that at my coming I might have collected it with interest? And he said to those who stood by, Take the mine from him and give it to him who has ten minas. But they said to him, Master, he has ten minas. For I say to you that to everyone who has will be given, and from him who does not have, even what he has will be taken away from him. But bring here those enemies of mine who do not want me to reign over them and slay them before me. And then if you turn in the Forms and Prayers book back to the Heidelberg Catechism, to, to the Lord's Day, 42 once more, page 249 in the Forms and Prayers book, page 249. In question 110, we read this morning what was forbidden in the commandment, you shall not steal. You shall not steal forbids all kinds of theft and cheating and squandering of God's gifts. And then question 111 says, what does God require of you in this commandment? That I do whatever I can and may for my neighbor's good, that I treat others as I would like them to treat me, and that I work faithfully so that I may help the needy in their hardship. Let's ask the Lord to bless us in his word tonight. Father in heaven, we pray that you would come near to us through your word, that you would illuminate the text and lighten up our hearts, that we could receive the word of our Lord Jesus Christ. And thank you for the way your word works upon us, sustaining us, renewing us and shaping us, do a great thing among us, and lead us to our Savior, that we may live for his glory. In his name we pray, amen. Well, there are several principles that you have to remember as you study the law, the Ten Commandments, and there's a variety of those we could consider, but the one before us tonight at the outset is is the principle that the negative always implies the positive. And when you come to one of the Ten Commandments that says you shall not, it also implies you shall. You shall do something. And that reminds us, doesn't it, that 
that the Lord never calls us to neutrality. He's never busy in our lives just to get us to give up sin and that's it, than to stand there empty or to stand there neutral. But the nature of, of Christ's salvation is always to restore us to what God made us to be. And he didn't make us to be neutral. He made us to be living and active servants who love to serve our Lord and our King. And so the commandments that say you shall not remind us, our hearts are often bent to sin, and so God has to say not this and not that and don't do that. But that's not all God says to us. As his spirit renews us, he says, now walk in this way, walk in this way. And so Ephesians chapter 4 says the one who steals must steal no longer. That's the, the forbidden, the negative. But then it says the positive, he is to work to do something useful with his hands, that he might have something now so to share. So work and share is the positive. Well, the gospel restores us to that positive, to that life. And, and therefore, we are not those who hate God's law, but those who confess that the law of the Lord is our delight. And we pray with the psalmist, open my eyes that I may see wondrous things out of your law. If I was the old creature, I would hate the law. I would run from the light. But since we're made new creatures, we come to the light and say, Lord, teach us and shape us. We want to please you and walk with you in the light of your commandments. Well, tonight the Lord calls us to the positive application of the Eighth Commandment. And what we see, first of all, is the rescue, the rescue that Christ brings. And then secondly, the resources, the resources he deposits in our lives. And then thirdly, the road, the stretch of road that he sets before us. Those three points tonight, the, res- the rescue, the resources, and the stretch of road before us. I'd like to begin at Luke 19 here, where Jesus comes to Jericho, which was a beautiful city, they say, of palm trees and rose gardens and streets lined with sycamore trees under the delightful climate and a grand uh, a place of a, of a winter palace for King Herod. Jericho is a place that also had quite an economy. It was sort of a port city, as you will, if you will, as people came into Israel there, and they were, they were at the crossroads there of trading, and so there's lots of that going on, and therefore it was a great place for a tax office. The Romans wanted to gather all that taxable tax on goods, and we read about this man named Zacchaeus, who was a chief tax collector, a chief tax collector, and he was rich. So we get the idea that the Zacchaeus man was a, a substantial man. He was a man of wealth, a man of prominence. Maybe he was the head of the whole district there in terms of the tax office. And there was a lot of money coming through there. And Zacchaeus is curious about Jesus for some reason. He wants to get a glimpse of Jesus. He's heard about him, perhaps. He maybe wants to size him up. Maybe he, maybe he's pricked by the Spirit, and he realized that just Jesus has been preaching about a righteousness so different from the Pharisees. But whatever the case, Zacchaeus, who is too short to see Jesus, would run ahead to a sycamore tree, climb up in it to get ready to see Jesus when he passed by. But Jesus was not content to give Zacchaeus a mere glimpse of him. The Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. That's how Jesus Ends it in verse 10. He came to seek and to save. It's Christ who initiates the contact with Zacchaeus, isn't it? If it was just Zacchaeus climbed up in a tree and that's all there was to it, then he would go home that night and say, Boy, honey, you won't believe it. I, I, was, I was within 20 feet of Jesus. I saw him walk right by me. 
But because Jesus comes to that place and verse 5 looks up and he speaks to Zacchaeus, it's Christ who initiates contact and seeks this lost sinner. Zacchaeus, come down, make haste, for I must stay at your house today. Now Zacchaeus is delighted by this and the people are angered by it. They complain that he has gone to eat with a sinner Remember that tax collectors were not well loved by the Jews because they were usually Jews who were working for the Romans. And the Romans were the occupying army in the land. The Jews were not free. They hated the Romans ruling over them. And there were some among the Jews who were helping the Romans to do that, namely these traitors, these scum, as they would think of them, these Jews who served the Roman government. But how sad it was at this last late stage in, in Christ's ministry here, even here, all the way in Luke 19, and people still don't get it. They, they are upset with Jesus for eating with a sinner, and they miss out again, don't they, on seeing what a glory that he comes for sinners. They still don't comprehend that Christ has come not for the righteous, he's come for sinners. He doesn't condone sin. He doesn't encourage thievery, but he comes to save Thieves. And Christ, by his power, conquers. He has come to Jericho, and he is the New Testament. Joshua and the tall walls of Zacchaeus' heart fall down. The kingdom of heaven and its righteousness conquers Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus knows of his sin as he stands before Christ, but he also knows of grace. So he finds salvation in Jesus And the evidence is, verse 8, Zacchaeus says, Look, Lord, I give half of my goods to the poor. That's his thank offering. He gives to God. And if I have taken anything from anyone by false accusation, I don't just restore it, but I restore it fourfold. I, I make restitution. The law in the Old Testament at some points required lesser restitution. Sometimes double what you'd stolen. But here Zacchaeus will go fourfold. And all of this is not the means by which Zacchaeus gets saved by doing these things, but it's the evidence that he is saved by Christ Jesus. It is the evidence that the Lord has visited him, that salvation has come to his house, that the Lord has come. What a wonderful thing it is when the gospel appears. When the Christ seeks and saves people, it changes them, right? It doesn't leave them unchanged. That's true for every kind of sinner including those who are thieves. I think last time we studied the Eighth Commandment, I I came across that little note in G.I. Packer's book, Growing in Christ, where he writes that in the Belfast Revival of 1922 and 23, converted shipyard workers brought back tools and equipment which they had stolen in such quantities that in one place an additional store shed had to be provided to hold them. When the gospel came and lives were changed and suddenly coming back are all these tools and all this equipment. What a wonder. The gospel changes people. My family has a friend who I met in the prison when I taught there for a bit who had been a thief, was in prison for it, but he was remarkably changed by the gospel and getting out of prison joined the church and proved himself a hard worker in the church and in his day job. The gospel changes people. 
And Jesus says, Today salvation has come to this house because he also is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. Zacchaeus is saved. And given those true riches we heard of this morning, paradise, fellowship with God, everlasting life. Zacchaeus couldn't couldn't make up for his sin by restitution. Zacchaeus couldn't get fourfold or eightfold or twelvefold and somehow pay his way into the kingdom. No, but Christ here is on the way to the cross, isn't he? And he's going to pay Zacchaeus' way. And so the good shepherd here is about seeking lost sheep. What a wonderful thing. We love to sing, I sought the Lord and afterward I knew he moved my soul to seek him, seeking me. It was not I that found, O Savior, true. No, I was found of thee. Must have been Zacchaeus' song, too. I was found of the Lord. I just wanted a glimpse of him, but he took over my whole life and gave me salvation. This is the glory of our Savior. We are all, as we heard this morning, by nature thieves and worthy of destruction. And Christ, if we know the Lord Jesus Christ, then we know this, that Christ himself has visited our hearts. There's no other way to get saved but by a personal encounter with the Lord Jesus Christ. And so if we know the Lord Jesus, if we are saved, then Christ by his spirit has personally called to us and brought us into his fold. And it's a blessing that he still speaks to us, right? When he convicts us by his spirit, when he's still seeking and saving in that way, we're thankful, right? And we say, yes, Lord, you love me, you care about me, you won't let me go. This is the great rescue of our Savior. And so he working in us, seeking, saving, forgiving, produces in us a true love for him. He fills now our lives with resources to use for him. And that's the second thing I draw your attention to tonight. The, The resources, the Lord who rescues us now fills our lives with his treasures to use for him. And what follows here then in the second place tonight, what follows the story of Zacchaeus here is this parable Jesus speaks of the minas. It's similar to another parable we might know better, the parable of the talents in Matthew's gospel. But this one is a bit different. And it begins, A certain nobleman went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and to return. And all of that's very important because of the context. In the context, Luke tells us in verse 11, is that Christ is near Jerusalem, and many think that the kingdom of God is about to appear. Many were looking for the appearance of the kingdom, and what would that entail? Well, for many of them, it was the expectation that the Romans would be driven out of their land and they'd be free. Now it's Passover time, and they're remembering how God delivered them from Egypt, they're remembering what it was to be a free people. And you can imagine that the, the flames of a revolutionary spirit were being kindled. And what if Christ didn't address this? And what if Jesus came into Jerusalem then and was hung on a cross and many people only thought then that the kingdom had failed? And then would they serve the Lord if the kingdom had failed? Is there any real purpose in going to work tomorrow or striving to be faithful in the little things? If there's no king, if there's no kingdom, if we're slaves forever? 
And you could think even just in terms of elections. We've got elections coming up in a bit, but, but how discouraged we are sometimes on the day after election. and wake up maybe and you're a bit sad. You don't feel like getting out of bed maybe. When we think there's not much future, we don't feel like going to work. But the deepest deliverance God's people needed was not from Rome, of course, but from their sins and from the devil's power. They needed the atoning work of Jesus. And they needed this king to die for them and rise and ascend in power and to redeem this world. And Christ is showing by this parable that though he's going away for a while, he hasn't failed. It's not that the kingdom has failed. He tells of a nobleman who, who went to a far country to receive a kingdom. Sounds a little strange to us, but, but the scholars tell us this was the normal routine under the Romans. That if you are the one now to be crowned the king of some area or appointed the ruler, you go to Rome to the emperor and he confers that power and authority on you. And then you return home. And it also did happen in those days that sometimes when the next person in line was to be crowned king... That people who didn't like, maybe a king died and they knew his son was a real rascal, they might, they might send a, a delegation to Rome to say, we don't want him to be our king, and try to oppose him. Well, that's the parable Jesus tells here. Our Lord is going to ascend to heaven and receive, right? He's going to be crowned king over all. He tells this parable of a nobleman who goes away and then returns. And Christ is saying, I'm going away and I will return. So how should you live? How should you live? Well, the nobleman here, before he leaves, he distributes his wealth among his servants. Ten servants, gives them each a mina, which is about three or four or five months' wages for labor. And it's an interesting way of doing it. He, in this parable, gives to each one of them one mina. He, he disperses, he spreads his resources among his servants, just as Christ puts in every one of our lives his treasures. There's nobody who says, I have nothing to use. I have nothing with which to trade. I have nothing with which to serve. No, but every life of every believer is enriched by Christ that we might use it for Christ. He's given us a lot, hasn't he? He's given us our bodies, our minds. He's given us time. He's given us opportunities. He's given us maybe family members, relationships with friends. He's given to us, above all, the gospel. This is the great deposit, right? This is the great treasure that's been given to the church and in the church to each of her members, that we, in this dark world, we know the way to heaven. And we're called to shine that light and to speak that word and to use wisely the treasure entrusted to us because the day of accountability comes. The master, or the, the nobleman now crowned king, returns, and he calls them to account. The two of the servants are able to make a presentation that the mina has earned ten minas, the mina has earned five minas. Well done, good servant. They're a gracious king they serve. He delights in what his servants do. They don't all come up with exactly the same amount, God gifts his people differently. But the master rejoices in every one of his servants that has sought to serve him from the heart. And though we often fail, and though we often come up with less than we would have desired, 
If we are those who humbly seek to serve the Lord, then we can expect that he will reward us and rejoice over it. That kind of a heart, you see, is far different from the one who left the mina wrapped in a handkerchief. And he, he accuses his master, saying, I feared you because you are an austere man. You collect what you did not deposit. You reap what you did not sow. He does not love his master. He hates him, doesn't he? And I think the nobleman here is not confessing that those charges are right, but he's saying, even if that were true, well, I condemn you then by your own mouth, because even if that were true, then you would have done better than you did for me. You would have worked hard knowing I was such a man. This man reveals that while his master's gone, he has no interest in his master. His heart is with those who've sent the the embassy saying, we don't want him to rule over us. That's where his heart really is. He doesn't love his master. How different for those like Zacchaeus who have been rescued. Because now we look at our lives, don't we? We say, it's all the Lord's, and I'm glad it is. I'm glad to confess it. I don't belong to myself. My life belongs to the Lord Jesus. All of my time and all of my resources and all that I have It's been entrusted to me that I might manage it for my master's glory and good. And that's my delight. It doesn't anger me. It's not not a burden. It's not some bondage I'm trying to cast off. It's the thing that I most want to do. I love my master. I love my king. You see? How wonderful it is to be a Christian and to be able to recognize, to be able to say, as we say as believers, that that all that I have is his, right? Mine is thine, not mine is mine. That's a good thing. That's a a glad thing for the believer. The world tries to hide from God and hide what they have from God. And the Christian says, all that I have has come from you. May it all be for your praise, all for the coming of your kingdom. So there is the the rescue, and then there are the resources distributed. And then finally, let's take a look at the stretch of road set before us in that parable of the Good Samaritan. Jesus tells a story of a man who travels from Jerusalem down to Jericho. And he falls among thieves. He's assaulted, he's robbed, he's stripped, he's left for dead. He's the object of a violation of the Eighth Commandment, isn't he? And then the crime scene is visited by a priest who happens to be walking by, and then by a Levite who happens to be walking by, a couple of the leaders of Israel, and here's one of their brethren, here's one of the sheep that they are appointed to take care of, lying there, and they quickly remember how busy they are. So they go to the other side of the road and pass on by. They didn't do anything wrong. They say to themselves, because, you know, we didn't rob the guy. We didn't hurt him. I didn't touch him. I didn't step on him. But we're reminded tonight that that's not the fulfillment of the law. The law doesn't say, if you didn't hurt anybody, you've obeyed the law. No, there's the positive side. What does God require of you in the Eighth Commandment? That I do whatever I can and may for my neighbor's good, that I treat others as I would like them to treat me. I didn't rob my neighbor. Well, actually, priest and Levi, you did rob him. By denying him 
the love that you would want to be shown to you, you have robbed him. He's been twice robbed now. But then came a Samaritan. Samaritans, you recall, were despised by the Jews. In fact, there was hostility between the Samaritans and the Jews. And the man who's, who's, who's asked Jesus the question, right? Who is my neighbor? Yeah, who's my neighbor? He is probably saying to himself, a Samaritan, well, that's certainly not one of my neighbors. He doesn't belong to the class of neighbors. But what does the Samaritan do in Jesus' parable? He sees the same thing the priest saw. He sees the same thing the Levite saw. And he has compassion. He goes out of his way to care for this man. He doesn't avoid trouble, but he takes on trouble. He, he tends to the man's wounds out of his own provisions. He interrupts his traveling schedule to bring the man to the inn and to take care of him there. And then he gives money to the innkeeper to care for the man and says, whatever other expenses, put them on my tab. The expert in the law had come to Jesus asking about eternal life and claiming he'd kept the law. Oh, I've loved God. I've loved my neighbor. Oh, but who is my neighbor? I've got that limited down, so I've loved my neighbor. Jesus is saying by this parable, you're asking the wrong question. Whereas Edmund Clowney puts it, Jesus does not suggest that we ask, who is my neighbor? How many must I love? He wants us to ask, to whom am I a neighbor? To how many can I show unmeasured love? Who is my neighbor can be a question, right, to escape all responsibility. But the question is, to whom may I be a neighbor? As I look out the stretch of road on which the Lord has placed me, to how many along this road can I stop to help? And the one who's teaching us to think in those terms is the one who's on the road, the Lord Jesus. Traveling along, meeting all these broken people and stopping, isn't he, to save and heading to the cross where he'll save his people by his own death. The Lord Jesus who takes trouble to himself, who doesn't pass by on the other side. The Lord Jesus who loves and gives until it hurts and then gives more. And this Lord Jesus is setting before his people a new way. Not a way of self-righteousness and if you try hard enough then you can inherit eternal life. But no, for those who have eternal life. The new life and following the Lord Jesus. Ironically enough, those who would pass by the Mugged man, the priest and the Levite, are the ones who are going to pass by the gruesome Christ upon the cross and say, we don't want to touch that one, but only those who will embrace Jesus Christ crucified, who will humble their pride to say, I need that one who died for me. I am a thief by nature. I squander God's gifts. I am self-absorbed. I need his, his atoning blood. I need his renewing spirit. I need a new life. Those who receive Jesus Christ receive the greatest thing. They receive the spirit of Christ living in them. And now they begin to look 
at all their resources differently. And they begin to look at the stretch of road before them in which which God and his providence has placed them quite differently. It's not simply about me getting from point A to point B with all my possessions intact. But it's a question, what can I use for the good of others? How can I serve those around me? How can I support and bless my neighbor? That I do whatever I can and may for my neighbor's good. That I treat others as I would like them to treat me. And that I work faithfully so that I may help the needy in their hardship. Well, that's a different way of life, isn't it? And above all, to help people by telling them the wonderful news of such a Savior who died for thieves and robbers and made them sons of God and new creation. Thinking back to that story of Christ saving Zacchaeus, the commentator Dr. Davis writes, this account reminds us of how important incidental details can be when we read that Jesus looked up at Zacchaeus. He writes, I think of that story of William Thomas in the community in South Wales where Martin Lloyd-Jones had his first pastorate. William Thomas was perhaps close to 70 years of age and basically a filthy, talking, nasty old drunk. But he overheard some men in the pub talking about the preaching at the chapel, something about there being, quote-unquote, hope for everybody. And Thomas was curious to check it out. The first Sunday, he lingered outside the church fence and lost his nerve. The next Sunday night, he found they were already singing and he was too late. The third Sunday evening, he was nervously loitering around the gate when one of the men welcomed him and said, Are you coming in, Bill? Come and sit with me. He did. And he understood the message and came to faith that very night. It all seemed so incidental, and yet in one way, everything hung on those words, come and sit with me, seems like they were part of a Savior seeking and saving the lost. What great resources, what great treasure we have as the people of Christ. And what a great partnership that we're called into the service of the great King, our Lord Jesus, who in all his grace and mercy has come to seek and to save the lost. May we not rob the world of the gospel we've been given. Amen. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for the Savior you've given to us. We thank you that his love has become our example It has become our redemption. It has become our power of a new life. We pray that the very spirit of our Lord Jesus Christ would fill our hearts, that we'd be trained away from the kind of self-protection rooted in selfishness, and that we'd be trained into the self-giving ways of our master. Hear us, we pray, and help us this week to walk in fellowship with our Savior. Amen.